0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods here on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research. I'm really excited today because we're going to be covering site reliability engineering. This is a topic that I've been interested in for quite some time. Site reliability engineering, as we'll explain during the podcast, is a practice that rose up in the Internet giants to help them create both highly reliable, high performance, but also fast moving systems. It was essentially an extension of the DevOps movement, and it was institutionalized at many of the internet giants. But what's interesting to me is how can site reliability engineering be transported into mainstream IT? I think many of the practices are going to be able to make mainstream IT practitioners really much more powerful and also increase the pace of change. So today I'm talking to Usher Risky and Leon Wong, the founders of a company called Blameless. I was really excited to get the uh, inquiry from them because Blameless is all about taking site reliability engineering practices and productizing them so that everybody can use them. And uh, today we're going to talk about exactly what that means and the prospects for success but I'm really, uh, uh, I think this is going to be something where we'll expose some important lessons for people who are trying to do a better job in their IT departments. So, guys, I'm really happy to have you on. Uh, you know, Usher, could you please, uh, you know, introduce yourself and, uh, and and then Leon, introduce yourself and then let's get a little description of, of Blameless.
1: Great. Thanks, Dan. Uh, great to be on. Um, My name is Asher Risky. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Blameless. Um, I've been in the traditional IT operations, DevOps, sysadmin, SRE, domain. I like to kind of bucket them all together for almost a decade now. I started my career in financial services doing very traditional enterprise IT type of work, um, following ITIL principles. And it was an interesting time around 2010, 2011, because the DevOps movement was taking, um, you know, getting a lot of traction. So my role transitioned into, um, you know, a DevOps focused role at Box.com, which was a company that was going through hyper growth at the time. Um, I did that for about four years, moved into an SRE role where I was managing multiple SRE teams. Um, and it was an interesting opportunity to kind of see how a fast-growing company needs to transform its culture to adopt to what the business needs. Um, and then that led to my next opportunity as to run uh, the platform engineering organization at a company called MuleSoft, uh, which, was later go on to, which would later go on to become uh, acquired by Salesforce. Um, and that was another opportunity to bring in SRE best practices into a company that was You know, doing extremely well as a business, but running into a lot of cultural, technological and um, operational challenges.
0: Um, So so in in a a sense, you were present at the creation of uh, site reliability engineering and you lived through its uh, expansion and growth.
1: I wouldn't say I was present at the creation of SRE. I I would say I was present at the creation of SRE at some of these fast growing companies. Yes. But as a movement, um, you know, SRE has been around um, since 2003, was pioneered by Google uh, it took a while for that set of practices uh, to actually catch on. Um, and it was the fastest growing, fastest moving technology giants of today that were adopting
0: those practices. So and I'd say. Still, I, mm-hmm. And still today, they're the most common practitioners.
1: They are the most mature practitioners.
0: Yes, I would say.
1: In terms of commonality, we're seeing more and more adoption across the board. And
0: Leon, tell us your equivalent story.
2: So I started my career at Microsoft, you could say pre-SRE, but really the idea of reliability was is core to an OS. There were initiatives to reduce the number of hangs and crashes I was a part of, and reliability of the operating system is paramount. So it was interesting to see how this evolved as we moved into the cloud, as we moved into microservices. And that really was from the perspective as a VC, which I was a partner at Lightspeed for the past six years, I saw that growth of it is how these new uh, global service companies would be trying to have the same reliability as as an operating system. How could they achieve some of that? And that was really where... I started to pay attention is that this is a this is a universal need I think people are going to depend on their apps as much as they would depend on something like Windows because you get attached to having something on demand and available well how are you possibly going to deliver that because there's no easy feat to try and do that
0: within an OS and so what's your role at, uh, at blameless
2: I'm one of the co-founders as well I'm my COO of blameless
0: excellent so We've got a great start here, and so now essentially what we're going to be talking about is uh, what SRE is and how can uh, I, mainstream IT benefit from it. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more at the, uh, at the end of this about the specifics of the blameless product, but uh, essentially before we do that, on the way, I'd love to have everybody understand... What is the mission of Blameless? We'll go lead later into the product functionality, but what is the mission of Blameless? What suffering are you seeking to relieve?
1: You know, we started Blameless because we felt the pain. The pain that we were experiencing was really driven by the customer pain for the companies that we were working at, the platforms that we were working on. Not just the customer pain, actually, but also the pain that our teams were experiencing in trying to clean up the messes that get created essentially called technical debt over time of companies that are doing really well and going fast and making sacrifices on you know uh making poor decisions poor choices uh, not out of any mal intent but just what's needed at the time to actually move move fast right uh that pain has to be dealt with by somebody right and uh, you know we felt that pain um and if it's not dealt with uh, appropriately then it can actually really negatively impact the business right the if you can think of an example of using the uber application on your phone when you pull it up you pass in you know the destination that you're trying to get to and then within a matter of seconds what you end up getting is a driver pricing and you're on your way now if that process takes anything longer than a few minutes um, you're just going to swipe your phone up up the Lyft app and repeat the process and what's happened is that uber has just lost a customer to Lyft or vice versa right right and
0: so, that's and, the so, and so the idea here is that this the site reliability engineering sort of sits at the end of the line where everything that's built is right in front of the customer and being used and it's the problems that you find there and how do you solve them that's really what you're trying to to figure out how do you find the problems How do you solve the problems? And then how do you create a process where the awareness of all of this gets expanded so that the person writing the line of code is aware of the problems you have at the end for the user?
1: That's right, Dan. I'll only add one more thing to that. And it's like, how do you do that without uh, assigning blame, right? And pointing fingers and creating a culture of self-perpetuating negativity inside the environment. But everything else you said is spot on.
0: Got it. So blameless the name of it is, is really calling forth the fact that in order for this process to work, we can't be trying to shoot the, the person who, was, who made the mistake. That's exactly right. Okay, good. So now, let's, let's, take a big, let's take a big step back and let's talk about the whole idea of site reliability engineering. Now, what is site reliability engineering and why is it ready for a wider audience? Like, essentially, why will mainstream IT benefit from site reliability engineering.
2: So the brief, there's the history of SRE, which I'm sure you can speak to, I think, um, since you were there and spoke with a lot of the original creators. I can speak to why SRE can be broadly applicable because it's really par- instrumental to the software development process. As you're making decisions of, how to architect the system, choosing pieces for the infrastructure, nothing's perfect. Otherwise, you're going to take too long to ship. So you're making decisions where you know there are issues, you're going to come back and fix that. But as things move quicker, as you're growing successfully, you rarely have time to come back and fix everything. That's what we uh, call technical debt. It accumulates. Now, what happens when these issues start impacting the user? That's when you have to have a system, and SRE is one such system which you can prioritize and assess when should I fix these issues before they become customer-impacting. One core concept of SRE in practice is the idea of setting SLOs, service-level objectives. How do I set an internal objective that I can address to raise the performance or reliability of a part of a system without the customer and end user uh, facing that? And this is one of the principles of SRE, which is being proactive and having an understanding of an issue before it hits. So that combined with what you said before, which is SRE is helping a process and a set of best practices that will help teams learn from the incident and resolve issues so they don't happen again. These are all part of uh, embedded into the software engineering processes. All along the way, there are bugs accumulating of the many, many issues that build up, what should you fix first? And what should you prioritize? This is a system and method for that.
0: And it's essential. Mm -hmm. And then so mainstream IT necessarily isn't building everything the same way that these internet giants are. And so how would you say the site reliability engineering process plays where you're doing what we like to focus on at Early Adopter, which is product-based platforms, and usually multi-product platforms, that 's what i t is usually using to deliver its service offerings either internally or to the external customer. How would you say that these this process of of, of you know resolving issues happens in that sort of environment
2: mm-hmm. well, it actually becomes even more important because within within the context of an o s we own all the lines of code pretty much and there 's a lot of it, but you own everything you can eventually go and figure that out but here you have a lot of dependencies each service each other product you're prescribing to it itself is a black box and it would be the wrong assumption to assume each of those little boxes is flawless has no bugs has no issues so you magnify teams and teams of software engineering uh, that have their own technical debt you don't know how that combination comes together and that's why this end of the line uh, process, regardless of what choices you made project combinations to put together. At the end of the day, it's going to be a complex mix of someone's technical debt colliding with someone's update and someone's bug. And you need to ignore all those choices and say, we're going to promise at the end the highest quality or a certain level of reliability for our end user. So that's why it's even more important as you make decisions and you outsource any lines of code to anyone else.
0: Right. So the idea is that mainstream IT will be able to look at what's actually impacting the end users. And then raise those issues up, and then you know have the rest of the the whole team figure out how to address them it doesn 't really matter whether they are um, able to change all the code. they can do things like introduce caches or or introduce uh, other other mechanisms you know wrapping things in services et etc to to allow to to take care of those defects
2: exactly they can sandbox it they can have more redundancy backups you need to have uh, failover plans. So all of these are necessary, but at least it shows you where the problems are.
0: Okay. So now, Usher, let's talk about the the um, uh, history of SRE. And then what I want to do is go through the core uh, essential principles that you guys use to define uh, the SRE practice. So let's yeah. just, let's take a little longer look at the, the history of SRE and, 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 and how it's become a, a much more widespread practice.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's a really interesting topic um, because SRE in its, uh, in its modern form, you know, has only existed since I'd say 2003 when, uh, you know, Google started putting this into practice. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the core principles of reliability and, uh, you know, placing value on the experience of the person that's using a particular product or service or trying to achieve a mission has been around for decades, Right. Um, I would go back as far as the space age days when we were doing launches and the importance of reliability and how core that was in actually helping get folks into space or getting to the moon um, which then permeated through academia and into you know private sector industries over time and consistently the theme that we see as we're talking to folks is there's there's reference back to you know older decades and mature practices that allowed us as a, as a civilization to do amazing things. Right. Um,
0: And so the, the, in other words, like we've always had to have nuclear reactors that are highly reliable or space launches that are highly reliable or operating rooms or manufacturing facilities where people's lives are at stake. And there's been a practice of reliability that it has a variety of aspects, whether it's redundancy or, or backup or caching or whatever. And, And that's, that's been around for a long time. But, but site, right. site reliability engineering is is sort of a different animal in, in that it takes all of those ideas but then does something different. What what does it Precisely. do differently?
1: Precisely right. And this this uh, needs a little bit of a history lesson here and and ties and I can refer back to my time working as a very traditional sys admin right in the old older days of traditional you know product development we had a waterfall methodology and we had a notion of silos within any organization right you've got a development team that is very, very different, has a different set of concerns than an operations team, right? And that's where sort of the sysadmin mindset comes in. And, you know, the development team's incentives is, hey, let's push as many features as possible, as quickly as possible. And, you know, we don't have to deal with the fallout of what that means, because there's another team called the operations team, whose responsibility it is to, quote unquote, operate my product or operate my service, right? Now. As a sysadmin or operator, um, you know the things that keep me up at night. Nice at night are hey, when when the product or feature is broken, I'm being paged at 3 a.m. in the morning to solve this problem. <clears throat> so my incentive as a sysadmin is to prevent change from going out into production as much as possible. So those two incentives are have been historically misaligned, right? And what that would mean is that you know, it creates this culture of conflict between the development team and the operations team, um, which would then create a culture of blame, which would then lead to things slowing down. And so those two teams, those two organizations are constantly misaligned when it comes to developing product. And that's how the industry has been operating. The IT industry has been operating for decades. Right? The next phase that came into play was the uh, DevOps movement, which was really in response to... to um, you know, this this tension that existed between the operations team and the um, development team. And it was a set of culture and practices uh, whose goal it was to reduce the gaps between software development and operations. And we hear a, a modern term around this called service ownership, which is how do we empower the development team and operations team to essentially, you know, have the same alignment, same incentive, and be responsible for the, collectively be responsible for the outcomes that the product is trying to uh, deliver, right? So there was this DevOps movement that came out. And I think the, the the pattern that we saw is that, you know, it was meant to be a cultural movement and it turned into, hey, how do we start, you know, does is DevOps continuous delivery? Is DevOps, you know, blamelessness? Is DevOps X, Y, and Z? And it became a, a really fuzzy concept that was really
0: hard for the industry to kind of, you know, uh, mold itself around, right? and also, is it fair to say that the DevOps movement was really being done and before it was actually codified? I mean, you know, the the, the internet giants were doing DevOps very early on because they had to keep you know changing the tires on these moving vehicles and and, and doing it reliably. And, and and it was after that had practice had sort of kind of um, uh, been been institutionalized in these companies that the word DevOps was created to describe it. It wasn't thought up by somebody as an idea and then promoted.
1: Precisely right. And the example I love to use here is that when I joined Box.com, I like to consider us, the, the initial team that I worked on, as one of the best practitioners of DevOps. And the number one fundamental reason for why we succeeded, and this sounds facetious, is that we never called it DevOps. We never gave it a term, DevOps. And only now when we reflect back and we think about the principles we used to operate that we realize that, hey, we were actually practicing DevOps really, really well. Right? Um, SRE, you know, came out of Google around, you know, early 2000 when again, Google was going through this insanely massive growth rate and doing extremely well as a company about to go public and just needed a new way to operate to reach the scale that Google is at now, what they call planet scale, right? And that required a different mindset. Um, And SRE emerged independently of DevOps, but it's funny because it has the same set of principles, shares the same set of principles and philosophies that DevOps has, right? And there's only differences in specific implementations um, that you can sort of classify as hey this is an sre practice but the core of it is very much the same and that's kind of the history of where we are today is you know companies like google sort of established that early sre practice which then permeated into other internet giants and fast-growing companies which quite frankly added their own flavors because not every company is going to be google right particularly the small upstarts which are just not going to be able to throw out you know thousands of headcount at a particular reliability problem, like they have to get creative. But the principles have stayed pretty intact as they've permeated through the industry.
0: Got it. And so a fair way to describe what SRE is, is just a focus on the last part of the DevOps process. And where, you know, you're interact you're ob- observing the interaction of the systems and the users. You're looking at what's going on and then you're trying to figure out a way to accelerate the whole DevOps communication. And it's just, SRE is just is, is is a name essentially for the departments that were at that that you know user facing operations end. It's not that that it was that they were ever intended to create a separation, but they have a different job to do, and that job started to become a culture, and then people decided to put a name on it, which was SRE. And again, this has also happened. SRE was not created by some guru and then inflicted on the world. It, it came out of what people were doing, and then was named later.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, I think the best way to, to talk about it is to really compare the principles within uh, DevOps and SRE to kind of see where the similarities come in. So, you know, a principle of DevOps. Well, so
0: that, that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go next. And so what we're going to do now is review what we discussed earlier was the essential prop principles of SRE. And I'm just going to review them really quickly, and then I'd like you to talk about each of them. Mm-hmm. The principles that we talked about were no more silos. Elimination of toil, measuring user happiness, use of service level objectives, use of error budgets, and the general mindset of blamelessness. And these are what you consider the SRE sort of principles. And then we can also, as you discuss these, you can also discuss how they're related to DevOps principles that are maybe used earlier on in the cycle. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start with no more silos.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's a great one to start with because it's something that I personally feel um, very passionately about is the the pattern that we've seen is like this notion of silos and, and closed, enclosed areas
0: of ownership, right? Well, and, well, well, what simply does no more silos mean?
1: Well, so no more sil- silos means that now we're breaking this proverbial wall between developers and operations. And what that means is there is a shared sense of ownership And we're all using the same tools and techniques, and we're all using the same set of practices uh, to get the job done, right? And what that means is we're all gonna be aware of how to write code really, really well. What are the best practices when it comes to testing and quality and continuous delivery? There's no disconnect here. And we're all on the same page is when something breaks, here is how we're going to respond to that thing breaking, and here's how we're gonna recover it, right? So the incentives are always in line. That's what we mean by reducing organizational silos and shared ownership, right? Because if you remember, you know, typically feature and product and development organizations want to get out and do as much as possible, get everything out as quickly as possible. The sysadmins or operators were have the complete opposite here, which is, hey, let's not push any changes and keep things stable so that we can sleep at night. Now we're saying everybody's going to share that ownership. And if we're not sleeping, then everybody's not sleeping. And, you know, if we're all being rewarded,
0: everybody is being collectively rewarded. And we're, all, it. Even, we're all speaking the same language. Right. We're all on the same team. We're all the same goals. And so uh, it's not why, why did you give me this crappy code? Or, you know, why can't you make my beautiful code run properly? It's, my gosh, how do we do a, a great job for the users?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: Exactly. So then the second one was elimination of toil. What, what simply do you mean by that?
1: So toil, the definition of toil is really doing the same thing over and over again um, without it sort of adding any type of intellectual value or it's just consuming, you know, intellectual human cycles to do something that we would consider as not a high value task, right? And traditional enterprise IT is strife with this. And the example I like to use is just ticketing in general. The number of clicks and the amount of follow up that folks have to do inside these systems is, to me, uh, quite unacceptable these days, which is, you know, there's a human being whose job it is to spend hours every day creating
0: tickets for people, for other people to follow up on and update those tickets, right? And also, this leads to so, so crazy practices, like um, there's often uh, a, a, a outsourcing of these handling of tickets where an outsource company offshore perhaps will be handling tickets and they are being rewarded by how many tickets they rely, they they resolve in a a certain amount of time. But then it turns out that the tickets, um, uh, the clock restarts when you reclassify a ticket. So a practice develops where they look at all the tickets that are about to expire unresolved and they reclassify them all so that they never uh, uh, get any that are unresolved and, and miss the deadline. But it's, it's these, over and over, it's these type of weirdnesses that show up in an IT organization, and that's, that's, that's what you would call toil.
1: That's what I would call toil, and then again, what you've done is created a, the wrong incentive for people to do work, Right um, Now, in SRE, the main focus here is how do we automate our jobs? How do we automate ourselves out of the job? And that's the core principle that sort of drives this notion of how do we move away from doing toil work into high value, you know, company objective filling type of work, right? Um, And the goal is to minimize manual systems work and focus on bringing long-term value to the system. And what that usually results in, hey, let's leverage our skills as software developers because guess what? We're the same as all the other developers on the team and let's focus those skills in automating the toil away, so that we can be collectively more efficient, which will then bubble up into wow we 're actually moving faster as an organization right?
0: but that, that calls forth a point that you, we, we, you covered in in our preparation call, which was you said that one of the big innovations of, of SRE at the beginning was the fact that you were bringing developers into the operations team, so people who had an architectural engineering mindset were coming in and we're we're now looking at the problem from that perspective and that really changed that really take took operations and stopped it being just operations and made it being sre
1: exactly right guess what engineers are lazy and if you give them toil they're going to automate their toil away right and i mean that in the most positive way possible right we're as engineers we're just we don't want to deal with toil we want to be working on high value work so we're incentivized to automate um ourselves out of our, our existing jobs, particularly the ones that we don't find to be valuable.
0: Yes, uh the, the the uh the chestnut quote uh or saying I've heard related to that is to be a good programmer you have to be smart. But to be a great programmer you also have to be lazy. <laughs> That's right. So now let's move on to the measuring user happiness uh, uh principle of SRE. What do you mean what's the simple way that that, that, that you can explain that?
1: I think that's, it's, it's as clear as day, uh, in my opinion, right? Um, at the end of the day, we all need a purpose that we're trying to go after. Typically, traditional enterprise IT are so, is so detached from the business and the business is driven by users and the user experience that, you know, there's this disillusionment. Whereas uh, within SRE, it's the opposite, where all of the work that's being driven within an SRE domain is 100% tied to user happiness, right? Uh, because if users are unhappy and user unhappiness stems from one of the biggest contributors to that is unreliability in the system things are not working i have to constantly refresh something uh, or it's really slow they're going to leave they're going to go somewhere else and guess who suffers everybody right so user happiness is a very core principle and it's a it's really a focusing principle it says hey let's not let's let's clear out all the noise right we have <clears throat> Thousands, potentially millions of things that we're measuring and monitoring in today's complex world. Let's just focus on the thing that's really important here, right? What's important for the business, right? It is, how is my user experiencing, what is their experience with our product, right? And if that's unreliable, that's on us. So let's focus on that. That's what we mean by user happiness and the focus on user
0: happiness. Got it. And this, this becomes the thing that you are optimizing for. Whatever metrics you decide represent user happiness, you know that is what you are going to be operating and uh, and 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 measuring for, and That's so I, I assume that then the measuring user happiness is an umbrella, and that that you know is represented by certain types of metrics, and then you you then now devolve down further, and then you start paying attention to what's happening with each of those sub areas, and that comes to our next uh, concept or principle of of site reliability engi- engineering service level objectives how, how what what explain those simply and how they fit into the, to the larger picture
1: yeah that's so you know the core service level objectives slo's um historically what we've had is an sla uh, particularly as more and more traditional it practices are moving into this hosted SaaS type of model oh we have three nines or four nines of availability My question is, how does one number represent all of the complexity for potentially thousands of people and systems all coming together to provide a particular kind of user experience, right? So the principle number one behind SLOs ties to the principle we talked about before is let's only focus on user happiness, right? Uh, Let's not worry about the tens or thousands of other metrics. Principle number two within SLOs is, look, there's never 100% of anything, right? So there's no natural system in the world that can commit 100% of anything to you as a human being. Why do we expect that from our systems? Why do we expect that from our products? Now let's accept the reality and the fact that there is a suboptimal but perfectly okay state for us to be operating in, uh, which is not 100%. It could be 99% and 99.9%. That again has to be tied back to what is acceptable to my user. And that difference between the... You know, SLO the user experience and what is what they're going to tolerate is what ties into the next thing, which you can't you can't really talk about SLOs without talking about error budgets. But it's error budget. There is a budget, regardless of how big or small it is, where it is acceptable for your users to have a certain level of degraded experience, and that's okay. But what that gives you as an organization is the sense of empowerment that you can decide. I have this lever that I can use to either slow down or move fast, right? and it's all tied back to my user experience. This is a very objective metric. There's no opinion here anymore, right? Um, so this is, again, a very uh, focused, this principle is aligned around
0: focus and bringing, collaborate, you know, bringing these two teams together. To okay, so let's, 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 let's unpack that a little bit. The idea is that you have user happiness that you're measuring in certain levels. You, you then have metrics or service level objectives for each thing that's important in delivering user happiness. The the difference between a service level objective and a service level agreement is that you are you, the minimum amount of, uh, of of performance is defined by user happiness and its impact on user happiness. So it's not some abstract number where I want you know this abstract perfection for 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 just uh, for without really thinking of its impact on user happiness. The the user happiness really changes it. So it t- could be that a service level of a certain kind. Could be if it's operating eighty percent of the time is fine because it really doesn't have that much impact on 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 service on, on measuring user happiness when it fails. Another type service might be five nines or six nines because if it fails every once it has a huge impact. And so the the and then that impact the, the difference between the perfection and what where user user uh, happiness is uh is affected that's the error budget.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and the only other thing I would add to that is an SLA is ironically not even a number set by the teams that are developing the product. Typically, it gets set by uh, somebody in a, the sales organization or the legal team because they've been asked to promise certain level of uptime or availability. And that the practice that we've seen is that number then trickles down from the top all the way into the engineering organization and then has the wrong incentive, right? But it's a number you put in a contract. Um, the SLO is a very objective number that's focused on user happiness metrics. And the thing that's informing those metrics are your existing monitoring systems, right? Those are the things that are, that are informing it. So there's well, really no human being um, that's kind of coming in and informing this metric. It's the system that's actually doing it.
0: Well, I'd love to get your opinion on this because I've talked to people in large IT uh, organizations and and some of the people recently have been really downplaying the importance of service level agreements for the reasons that you say, and instead have been up uh, have, have been more interested in the idea of operating level agreements, and that describe actually how we're going to work together. And it seems to me, in a way, service level agreements are very, very similar to operating level agreements because you're you're actually talking about the real work we're going to do and what's really important about that work and how we're going to measure, you know, so that we know that we don't. Have any any important impact?
1: Yeah, and that lines up really, really well. And I'm I'm really glad to hear that as a as a mindset that's beginning to change. Um, I, I think the focus should be just like within SRE principle of removing these silos and collaborating. Why can't we collaborate with our customers and come to an agreement on what we both collectively think? Uh, what is the inherent or implicit agreement that we're having? And again, that's focused on user happiness or or user. Um, you know, um, the, the functionality of the product uh, that's actually helping our users get their job done versus just some arbitrary number that you know we're just trying to check a box somewhere. So I'm really happy to hear that, that. And what that means is the one number now deconstructs itself into maybe potentially four or five other areas that we're agreeing on how we're gonna work together. So that's what I really like about uh, this particular concept.
0: Got it. And so finally we get to the name of the company concept uh, blamelessness. And so it seems like, you know, obviously, you know, we don't like to live in cultures where people are blaming, but, but it seems that we often, especially in, in IT and operations cultures, you know, the, 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 the mindset is the only thing I can do wrong is make a mistake. If everything's running properly, you know, then, then, uh, uh, that's what I'm supposed to do. But if I, anything goes wrong, well then, then I'm in trouble. And so how do you escape that uh, you know, that seems like a reasonable, you know, sort of goal for operations is to not make any mistakes, not have everything wrong. But but how do you escape that sort of culture of, of, of blame?
1: That's a really good. And this is one thing that uh, both Fiona and I are extremely, extremely passionate about and something that we've been very <laughs> intentional about the way that we practice at our own company, Blameless. Right. But it stems from our experiences. Right. Um, again, it all goes back to the alignments and the incentives that people have. And when those two things are misaligned, then you've just set, the system is already set up for failure and,
0: and, and blame and strife, right? Well, how would, you, how would you explain simply what does it mean to be blameless? What is a blameless organization? What does it mean?
1: A blameless organization means that at no point in time when something bad happens that, you are, that an individual or a set of individuals are being called out explicitly for that particular thing. The thing that is assuming the blame is the system or the organization or the company. Hey, we could have done this collectively as an organization. This is the thing we could have done better. The example I like to give is, um, you know, if you start to think about using a five wise kind of model. Hey, we had an outage. Why did we have this outage? Because, um, you know, the database crashed. Why did the database crash? Because Usher pushed this button to, that caused the database to crash. Now, you can stop there. But when you see that statement being read out to you, you're immediately going to be asked, was it really Usher's fault that this happened? Was Usher acting with malintent? Um, And the answer in most cases will be, no, this, you know, Usher's a a good guy. You know, he's trying to do the right thing. What other level can we look at here? What is the more holistic approach? Why was Usher put into a position where he was making a manual change that caused this thing to go down? Okay, now let's focus on that problem, right? There's a gap here. There's a systemic gap that we need to fill in. Right
2: yeah how I look at that is also there 's a maturity level about, from the organization so if you 're trying to blame the person or the person that triggered the event, that is not a mature way to look at the situation because you 're expecting too much from the system and it 's like blaming the user for um, deleting a file or or, or um, something that should should be there but if you' as you as the organization becomes more mature, you realize that the person finding the issue should be the one rewarded if you're taking that issue and you're really learning from that and you're following it through to all the endpoints and you're getting the proper fix in place to not just prevent that one issue, but you have actually looked at holistically how to make that system better. So it becomes one of your competitive advantages, which is all systems will have issues and, and have downtime, but how you can take that and make your recover from that and come up stronger. I think that shift is part of that mindset. And you can only do that if not only is the person that uncovers or hits the issue not blamed, but they're seen as, okay, thank you for discovering this. Let's now figure out the broader scope of this whole impact and fix future issues of this type. So that's how you get to the scale that you want.
0: Well, how do you actually introduce a culture like this of blamelessness because you know, it seems like it would be hard to go from a hostile environment to one in which, uh, uh, it was a blameless environment, especially when both environments, your, your design, your, your ultimate goal is high performance, high user happiness. You know, you want to, in both environments, you want to avoid problems. So, so how does it, uh, how does it, how do you actually make that transition?
2: if you avoid problems but you need to change what's currently not working i think that's fundamental to without this uh, safe environment to make changes then the patterns that you have the bugs that are there no one's willing to touch those no one's willing to go make the bigger change people stick to just the surface change and as you mentioned you you stick to changes that will likely not cause other issues but to actually fix something more fundamental you may uncover other issues so part of this is showing by example and that's why you need a system of accountability and metrics that yes as you fix these issues the system is becoming more more reliable if you don't have that number if you can't actually measure okay today we're at 88 percent now we made these changes we're at 89 percent if you can't if you can't measure what you're doing along the way it's really scary because you don't know what the impact is. But if you can, then you can know you're iterating towards something better.
0: Got it. And so blamelessness allows us to have ambition to actually uncover all the, the technical debt, all of the ugliness, and say, look, here's all the ugliness. You know, let's actually deal with it instead of, instead of being afraid of, oh, wait, if we touch the ugliness, even worse things are going to happen. And, and whoever's, whoever's uh, looking at us and monitoring us will say, oh, my God, how does this ugliness get here? Oh, my exactly. God. Exactly. If
2: you've ever heard an engineer on the team say, you know, you don't want to touch that. You don't want to touch that. That's that's legacy. Or the person working on that area has left. No one should go make changes in that that body of code. That is exactly the thing that's there. And uh, because everyone's afraid, well, want I touch it, I know I'm going to get a bunch of bugs that no one really wants to fix. But that's precisely where fixes may be needed. Who's going to go in and fix that? The person okay. doing that should be rewarded.
0: So, and then, so... I think I can answer the next question uh, myself, and then maybe you guys can 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 uh, uh, ad- extend the answer. So the yeah. question is, how is this going to work for mainstream i t so the 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 idea of your product is not that mainstream i t uses this product, and just by using the product, they get a better result. This is about a cultural change. This is about adopting a DevOps mentality. Adopting SRE practices so that you can operate at a higher level of performance with a faster rate of change. And you can start spending your effort on systematic problems that matter. So, in a sense, it's sort of like uh, you know, the way that Scrum works to allow you to make progress no matter what the size of your development team, no matter what's going on, at least when you did a Scrum, you made a little bit of progress that, that that sprint. And so here, the idea is, let's say I'm running an ERP system. Well, you know, now let's look at the holistic aspect, let's measure user happiness. Let's look at what's really going on. And let's really want to know what the worst case is and want to know what the ugliness is and want to know what the problems are. And then once we do, once we want to know all that, then there's a process for working together to help address it. And so... That is how mainstream IT is going to benefit: is that they're going to unblock a lot of this negativity and that shrinks the level of their systematic thinking, that shrinks the level of their problem solving.
1: Yeah, yeah, Dan. I think the one thing that I'll add that we haven't talked about is the the culture change, right? Um, and the culture aspect of this. And actually, for me, that's step one. And Leon touched on this. He used the word safety, right? Historically, what hasn't existed because of the way that things have been set up between IT and operations, uh, excuse me, developers and operations folks, is psychological safety, right? It's the sense of, hey, it's okay to make f- mistakes. Failures are inevitable as long as we have accountability and we can learn from these and move on. That's a, that's a feeling. That's a psycho- That's a That's a culture of psychological safety that needs to be created. And the thing that's going to make it happen is the leadership the leadership has to buy in for these organizations on into this concept of psychological safety and failure being an acceptable mode to operate in. Um, And then that's how it's going to start permeating through. Um, And that's one principle that I think we, you know, I I personally feel very strongly about and, And I think that's what is very important and what enables blamelessness is that sense of psychological safety and very core to blamelessness as well.
0: Okay. So now this seems like a tall order, for a product to deliver all of this. So how, what is your, what is your, what is the blameless uh, product actually have as, in terms of product capabilities that help companies move in this direction?
1: Yeah, you know, you talked about, um, Dan, you talked about, you used the word scrum and agile, right? Now that's a, that's a methodology, but we have platforms that are available that make it easier to implement those methodologies within a certain organization and it's a combination of methodology plus platform or tooling that is going to enable the cultural shift that needs to happen it's never going to be one tool or a platform that's going to do it or just a set of words or documents that's going to make it happen those two things need to come together right and at blameless our vision is to enable mo- any modern enterprise any modern company regardless of you know how they've been operating historically to level themselves up and adopt SRE best practices so that it's easier for them to maximize reliability and innovation at the same time. Right. And so with blameless, what, we're, what you're getting is a platform that just makes it easy for folks to adopt SRE best practices with blamelessness built in or blamelessness encouraged through the platform or, you know, toil being automated away through our platform um, or a really, really heavy emphasis on user happiness and the ability to set those pieces up together inside our platform, and then driving incident res- response and resolution behavior differently. All of that is what you get inside our system. But more importantly, we also have decades, collectively decades of experience in SRE within our team, That we, and we work with you know, enterprises to help them, help onboard them onto the SRE vision. Right. We teach them SRE best practices.
0: Got it. So well give me the, the, the breakdown of the product modules that help you do this. What, what when you look at the various, you know, menu tree of blameless, what do you see?
2: Yeah, I uncover that. So there's there's two big forks. There's reacting to issues that impact the user happiness. And the two modules there are how do you resolve incidents and how do you learn from them with this idea of postmortems and Uh, post-incident learning. That's reacting to issues. Then there's the proactive side, which is looking at the system as a whole, setting objectives, SLOs, service level objectives, and defining error budgets before issues arise. This is where you as a team are identifying proactively, these are the areas I want to raise the reliability in, and this is when and how precisely I'm going to allocate my budget to go make those changes. So there's two sides of those systems, and the platform that brings it together and connects that dot, the bridging between this reactive piece, which has a very momentum-driven to this proactive piece, is what Blameless brings together. These are four components that we have, and underlying it, we have some components around... Overall, how we think about change management, which ties into the overall SRE set of principles. These are the components of the system today.
0: Got it. Well, it seems like that in order to get this right, you need to have the whole team go on some sort of Zen retreat, you know, and eat a vegetarian diet and all just kind of purge all of the blame from you, you know, and and beat drums or, you know, go to go to heat rooms or something like that. I mean, it, it, it seems like it's a lot easier said than done to kind of Discard these negative practices. I assume that for it to really work, you have to have somebody at a relatively senior level saying, "Look, this is where we need to go."
2: Yeah, it is easier said than done. I think learning and improving is the key. So as long as there's a desire to learn and improve, even if there's a little bit of blame and that language at first, it does. You don't have to don't have to worry about that. As long as everyone's goal is how do we figure out how to do this better, and I think many many teams have that desire you're able to make progress. So as long as that desire is there, I want to make this better. Then I think that that's the right starting point. You're not going to get to the perfect state as even with exercise, anything to be perfectly blameless. That's okay. And you can step towards that. At least you have a system that's keeping track. Well, of the last 10 postmortems, you know, it's gone from all 10 to now only eight of them blame, blame others. Now there's less. So I think you'll be able to see improvement that way.
0: Got it. Well, now I want to end this podcast with a an idea that you brought up in our preparation call, which was, I thought, one of the most eloquent explanations of what it means to be senior as a developer in an organization. And I think that we can draw an analogy from that analysis, which I'll, I'll review, to what you're asking the site reliability engineering function to do for a company. And so what you mentioned was that, you know, when somebody joins uh, a company as a developer. Often they have pretty high level skills. They they can code very well. But when they're put in the environment of a large complex system and asked the code, they don't know what is the weak parts of the system. What are the weak parts of the system? What are the strong parts of the system? What work they need to do to avoid some of the weak parts? How do they uh, 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 take advantage of some of the strong parts so that a senior developer actually knows essentially where all the bodies are buried, or at least where all of the the fast, slow, weak, strong parts of the system are. And so that's what being senior really means, is to know the, the defects and the strengths of a complex system and know how to work around them to get the coding job done. And I really thought that was a very good explanation because you're right. You know, when people arrive at companies, they've been so well trained these days, you know, with the computer science programs, they can code like crazy. But when they write code versus a senior person's write code, all these problems are evident. Is there another aspect of seniority or have I captured it reasonably well?
2: No, I think that's a really good capture of that. It's that each company is its own environment with the realities. And when you're learning from even another company or in school, you're learning in the ideal. It's like physics in the real world with weather versus launching launching a real rocket in the space versus launching it on an the simulation. And I think senior engineers in summary can get shit done and help their team get product out safely to the real world.
0: So now it seems to me the analogy we can draw to SRE is that the entire SRE function is to be that senior mindset, to know the weaknesses of every at every level, the weaknesses in the services the weaknesses in the development processes, the weaknesses in the operations aspects, the weaknesses in the user interface, so that you can then expose that and figure out what to do with it. And so that seniority, that understanding of the, the defects of these strengths is really what SRE is about, institutionally developing, so that you can systematically react to it.
2: Yeah, and it's really having that memory over the long term so that you don't have to have experienced every single issue yourself to learn from it. How can, as an organization, everyone learn from this incident? And so collectively, you can become more senior as an organization. That's precisely the, w- one of the benefits. Well,
0: yeah. great. Um, this has been a hugely fun uh, call because, you know, I love this sort of computer science, enterprise tech, you know, IT sort of stuff. And uh, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Designing Enterprise Platforms from Early Adopter Research.
2: Thanks for having us, Dan.
1: Thank you, Dan.